0: Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony Caldellus, your host. It is traditional to call Byzantium a multi-ethnic empire. Indeed, there were periods in the empire's history when it encompassed populations who spoke languages other than Greek and Latin, uh, which were the languages used uh, predominantly by the institutions of the state and the majority of the population. So, for example, in the 5th century, the empire included very many speakers of Thracian, Aramaic, and Coptic, uh, which is late Egyptian. In the 11th century, it included speakers of Italian, Slavonic, Albanian, Armenian, Georgian, Arabic, and others. Now, this poses a challenge because no scholar can learn all those languages well enough, and the training for the field has traditionally emphasized Greek linguistic skills. Now, it would be one thing if we recognized our limitations and did our best to include those other traditions in our analysis of Byzantine society. We could, for example, use translations of sources written in those other languages or consult with their experts when writing studies that purport to encompass the whole of what was going on in Byzantium. And that's what translations and colleagues are for. But the challenge actually runs deeper than that. In the history of scholarship, linguistic barriers tend to create subfields that operate in separate silos that often don't communicate well with each other. I'll give you a striking example. We have many studies of Byzantine historiography, that is, how the Byzantines wrote history. Now, that field, however, tends to be defined by language, it includes Greek and Latin texts in the early Byzantine period and only Greek texts thereafter. Now, don't get me wrong, there are valid reasons for doing this, and I have done it myself. But consider one of the absolute best historians who ever wrote within the confines of the empire. He lived most of his life in Antioch at a time when it was under Byzantine rule, and he was orthodox by Byzantine standards. He could speak and read Greek at a high level, and made use of very many Greek sources. But he wrote in Arabic. His name was Yahya, and he was one of the best ancient or medieval historians I have ever read. However, he is not included in surveys of Byzantine historiography because he did not write in Greek. In fact, he's not often included in surveys of Arabic historiography because he wasn't a Muslim. So Arabic studies, by the way, have their own silos, uh, but they are defined by religion. I'll give you another example. Major intellectual developments in the Jewish communities of Byzantine southern Italy were taking place in the 10th and 11th centuries, but you wouldn't likely know about them from scholarship on Byzantium, so they are the province of Jewish studies. So today we're going to talk about a similar case, only it is one from the early Byzantine period. And this concerns the millions of Coptic speakers who lived in what is often called Byzantine Egypt. Their spokesmen, especially the monastic founder, Shanuda the Great, who wrote volumes and volumes of sermons and letters and so on, they're also relegated to the subfield of Coptic studies. But consider this, like Yahya of Antioch. Shenouda was trained in Greek literature and could certainly have communicated easily with, say, John Chrysostom or Cyril of Alexandria. In fact, he probably did. By the way, do you know who could not have communicated with Chrysostom or Cyril of Alexandria, at least without a translator? This is Saint Augustine who knew only Latin. And yet we define this period as the age of Augustine and Chrysostom because it makes sense to lump Greek and Latin together. But if we look at it differently, the early Byzantine period was more like the world of Chrysostom and Shenouda. Today's conversation is a special treat because I have two guests who are experts in the Coptic language, in addition to Greek and Latin and many other things besides, and they are also part of a large team that is making Shenouda's works available in the original Coptic and in English translation. They are Sofia Torayas Tovar at the University of Chicago, and David Bracky at The Ohio State University. Here's my conversation with Sophia and David. So I'm joined uh, today by two guests. Um, From Chicago, we have Sophia. Welcome, Sophia. Thank you. And uh, here in Columbus, uh, David. Hello, David. Hi, Anthony. And Sophia. So um, to get into the uh, question of Coptic culture and especially how Byzantinists should approach it and what they have to learn from it, Um, I just wanted to start by pointing out a kind of paradox, which is that the the period of late antiquity in Egypt, let's say roughly from the 4th to the early 7th century, is often referred to in the technical literature as the Byzantine period in Egypt. So when you say Byzantine Egypt, this is the period that you mean. But on the other hand, Byzantinist Byzantinists, right, who work on primarily Greek material, tend not to pay much attention to the Coptic material. And this is the majority of the population in Egypt was spoke Coptic, and and so there's kind of just this juncture between a field being claimed for Byzantium in some of the terminology, but then Byzantinists actually don't get very deep into the Coptic material, and so this is the problem that I wanted to address with this episode, and and invited you both to it. Um, so why don't we just start first, um, Sophia? I just wanted to ask you, could you tell us what the term Coptic refers to, all of its different senses?
1: Yeah. Yes, so Mm -hmm. as you say, Coptic has many different uh, kinds of senses. So, used in the context of uh, scholarship, it's normally used to Mm -hmm. refer to to the language, for example, to a a phase of the Egyptian language that was spoken and written in the Christian period. But then, um, uh, when when we get to later periods, the term Coptic is also used to 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 mean the community, the Christian communities in in egypt who are not no longer speaking the coptic language so coptic refers both to a language a language a face of the language that i i can explain uh the, the, its characteristics in a minute and it also refers to a community in antiquity but it also has has uh, ended up meaning also um uh, the greek christian community in modern egypt it's the, the, like the Coptic community,
0: sure. And today, to the Christian Church in Egypt, uh, you know, exactly. Yeah, um, is it used sometimes to refer specifically to the script in which the language yeah. was written?
1: Yeah. So um, after after the period of Augustus, the the Coptic the Egyptian language uh, kind of uh, declines in in the written record. So like uh, demotic documents, like. Little by little stop being written. so the Egyptian commun- the Egyptian speakers uh, had to develop a new way of recovering their language in the in the written record. So we start finding at the beginning of the of the Christian era different attempts at at uh, at writing the Egyptian language with the with the Greek alphabet. So um, these uh, attempts like uh, this ad- adoption of the Greek alphabet uh, uh, became uh, kind of standardized around the 4th century um, and it became like a new vehicle for for a language that had lost its space in the in in some in some uh, space in some written space on some spaces of literacy so we find at the end so like in the third fourth century we start finding like a like a fully developed um, uh, writing system uh, that would be used both for uh, the first translations of the Bible but also we we find it uh, for like some uh, magical texts
0: okay Okay, thank you. and and so David, um, can you tell us a little bit about the just the context of Egypt in general in this period? like roughly what kind of demography are we talking about? and how is this language situated within the population of Egypt? Of course, it's very difficult to be sure how many
2: people were in late ancient Egypt. We have um, Josephus talks about some over seven million people actually living in Egypt, but actually most scholars today would, estimate somewhere around five or six million people throughout Egypt, with most dense population being in the delta region, at least half of those people living in the delta. And then the rest spread up and down the Nile, of course, um, upriver towards what we would call Ethiopia, the Sudan, whatever. And among those people, we tend to see the society as very much bilingual. That is, that there was Greek, obviously, for hundreds of years. Greek had been an administrative and important language and also Coptic speakers. But generally, it's believed that um, outside major urban areas, people's first language would be Greek. So I mean, Coptic. So there would be a lot of Coptic speakers, but who obviously would have some acquaintance with Greek in some way.
0: Sure. Now, in in past scholarship, um, one tends to find this assumption that native Egyptian culture is somehow hostile to Greek culture, and that there's kind of this tension between the two, and that the emergence of Coptic (coughs) literature represents some kind of attempt to create an indigenous culture that is uh, separate from Greek. Um, And sometimes there have even been claims about Egyptian nationalism and, you know, the 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 dislike uh, on the part of the local population of the roman empire and the dominant greek classes and all of that now in recent times i take it that this paradigm has generally been rejected and and i think that coptic literature which is closely associated with the church in egypt um is seen as very closely entwined with um its greek counterparts and that there actually isn't any Mm -hmm. kind of opposition or hostility here Is, is that something you can comment on
1: i think one of the one of the reasons this this uh, this has been approached uh, that way is that uh, there has been always a tendency in modern scholarship to 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 separate by language the approach to to the sources we have the written sources so if you find hellenists approaching the greek papyri and not paying attention to the coptic literature or the coptic papyri then you don't get a full picture of the situation so egypt in late antiquity was was a bilingual space and although it's very difficult to assess uh, bilingualism as a phenomenon as a linguistic phenomenon in different periods and and in different geographical spaces um there is there is some things that we can say using the evidence we have the written evidence we have so uh, although it is only a tiny portion of the linguistic production we have a very very rich Source of information in the papyri and the literature produced in Egypt, and from this evidence, we know that there were bilingual individuals and and bilingual communities. We have bilingual archives that prove that some communities that are Christian and they are Coptic Christians and they still use Greek in their everyday transactions and they and they read uh, and they also read Greek literature, and we have also evidence of. Of strategies uh, for communication which bridge Greek and Coptic. So, so we have interpreters, we have bilingual school texts, we have uh, bilingual um, um, bilingual individuals that act as like in, uh, translators and interpreters, and 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 I think it's also in, uh, interesting. Um, to see that uh, in the latest scholarship on the standardization of the comp- of of the Coptic script and the Coptic language, uh, is thought to have been done, or have been the work of Hellenized intellectuals, people who really, who, who were who really uh, were like uh, knew Greek very well, and um, and created, uh, uh, let's say, like. Um, uh, a, a form, a literary form of the of the Egyptian language that would be used to produce the translations of the Bible. That it doesn't come ex- from a monolingual community. It's clearly bilingual and very erudite. Right, kind and,
0: of. and a lot of Coptic literature is just simply translated from Greek texts.
1: Exactly, yeah.
2: I, I mean, one reason this kind of nationalism idea developed is there was a certain phase in the kind of early to mid 20th century among church historians in which they did not want to think that for example conflicts between egypt and the wider imperial church for example were really based on the doctrinal and religious divisions that people said they were instead there must be social economic political forces that are really driving this and so nationalism emerged as as an idea we tend not to think that way as much anymore. Right. But another um, factor, it, it must be said, that one place this comes from is that you do see in Coptic literature, above all in Shenouda, the use of the word Hellen in a negative way. That is, he attacks people he calls Hellenes and, and so forth. And so this does lead to a thought that he's really anti-Greek rather than using that term in a more precise way, perhaps, for example, as quote unquote, what we would call pagan or something like that.
0: Right, I mean, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a, an abbot and a, a thinker within the Christian church, he was hostile to paganism. Exactly. And presumably when he meant, when he used Hellene as a pagan, he probably meant more the local Egyptian pagan cults than anything that we would recognize as, you know, Hellenic, right? Yes, although I think there's
2: also a sense that he sometimes used the term for people we would call Christian. and in that sense, I think it was kind of like elite. you know, the uh, you know, there was a right. kind of um, populism to some of this literature that was not anti-Greek in the sense of anti- some other culture, but anti-a certain wealthy, Educated class right. that uh, was portrayed as oppressive and you know not yeah, sufficiently yeah. Christianized, or anti-intellectual. And so intellectual or yes, something. there's an anti-intellectual, yeah. I think, bent to it, coming right. from. By the way, we must say intellectuals.
0: Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> That's always useful. To yeah, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So and, and I, so, I get the sense that so just delving into the material for Egypt in this period and especially the administrative documents and also life in the monasteries, I get the impression that even when you had one you know, party in an encounter speaking Greek and the other speaking Coptic, that it was usually possible to find a translator and that communication wasn't an issue, right? Like, in, you, you rarely find cases of just people being unable to communicate in this social context, right?
1: Definitely, there there were there were um, many different ways uh, in which, like, travelers and pilgrims to the monasteries were were welcomed. And one of them is like uh, providing um, a linguistic support to to many of them. We have we have some evidence of monasteries having sp- specific uh, houses inside the monasteries, like for Greek speaking or Latin speaking. Pilgrims or travelers. So and uh, and we have in the in the in the especially in the lives lives of Pacomius, we have many references to to ways in which uh, uh, these uh, these uh, uh, travelers or these pilgrims or visitors were uh, helped even to learn the Coptic language. So so right. that yeah so thinking of thinking of monasteries as, as places where where so many people were attracted for religious reasons we have to think that that they were multicultural and multilinguistic spaces so so i'm sure that uh, that that uh, the evidence we get from the from the sources means that it was it was clearly uh, it was clearly the case yeah that, uh,
0: Okay, so David, you mentioned Chanuda. so let's turn to him, um, and um, first of all, a very interesting fact about his life is that he seems to live for 118 years.
2: Yes, I mean this is, um, though it must be said that this is a matter of dispute, yes. as you can well imagine, <laughs> um, uh, I'll just briefly kind of say in a sketchy way why we think this might be true, at least some of us do, is that um, the life of Shenouda, which is highly hagiographic and not reliable in most cases, does say he lived 118 years. But then there are scattered pieces of evidence. We have an inscription in the monastery, admittedly medieval, that gives his birth date. Um, his, we have a, a a text from his successor as leader of the monastery who refers to Shenouda's date. A death date, which means it must have happened only in two potential years because of the way he talks about the addiction cycles and all that kind of business. And Chanute himself refers to events in his life and mentions years and so forth and so on. The gist of the matter is, is the only way for all of that to work out is to imagine that he was born around 347, 348 and died in 465. If you go with another reconstruction you have to take one piece of evidence at least and say and throw it out right you know you have to throw out the inscription or you have to uh say no the death isn't quite what we thought it was or you have to say that he was totally exaggerating when it's when he says he's been in the desert so many years on this date and so forth so you have to take something and get rid of it Right, right, to get come up with a lower number of
0: years, but it's an extraordinary number of years. Uh, yes, I, I look. I think I looked up the the record holders. Yes, and, and for men, one hundred and eighteen is like the upper limit of like modern longevity.
2: Yes, I think it was just last year a woman in France or somewhere reached one hundred and eighteen or something <laughs> like that. But yes, right. no, it's. Um, I, I I mean I tend to use the number because it whats works out but I tend to think he just lived a really long time that's sure you know,
0: yeah but but it's just just to put this in context this would mean that he was a teenager when Julian was emperor that's right and he outlived Attila yes I mean that that is <laughs> In, in a certain sense, he, he lived through a tenth of all of Byzantine history. He, he lived through a
2: great deal, although, of course, he was in a cave, a lot of it, and missed sure. some of it. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, he had opinions about all no, of I it. I bet right? he had opinions. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly right. Um, okay. So why don't you tell hey, us may a bit? I, may, yeah.
1: may I add, may I add another, an anecdote that you can then cut and put in the previous thing? Okay. <laughs> No, it's because I had it. So I, I think it's I think it's uh, it's fun to 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 include about like the multilingualism in the and it's a fun anecdote. Yeah, go ahead. So um, we know from the lives of uh, of Pacomius that uh, once he received a visit from a Latin speaking visitor who wanted to confess with Pacomius, but Pacomius didn't know any greek or any latin apparently according to this life so he asked the visitor to wait and he retired to pray and he was praying for a number of hours and uh, and he then he came out and he could perfectly speak greek and latin
0: <laughs> the, so, this is the pacomius technique
1: this is the Pacomius technique so we, i think we should yes. kind of try to use it we it, it, we don't pray yeah. enough
0: <laughs> it will result in much shorter textbooks <laughs> the, the deans might like that uh, sequence of uh, Greek instruction that's right exactly yeah. all right uh, so David can you just tell us a little bit about the the background of Shenouda's life who was he what did he do and then we can later talk about his works um, Shenouda uh, the most important thing about him of
2: course is that he did lead um, a mon- monastic federation of three monasteries that we refer to as the White Monastery Federation um, they were These three monasteries were located In and near the village of Atrepe Which was across the river From Panopolis, modern day Akhmim, And uh, so this is Sohag in contemporary Egypt, which is um, You know, north of Luxor, so kind of south um, So he had, he led Two monasteries for men And one for women um, And these monasteries Together probably had between 1500, and 2,000 monks at some point. Um, we don't know that much about his early life, but he apparently um, had received a very good education, uh, probably came from something of a well-to-do family. And uh, by probably 1820 was in, by the ages of 18 or 20, he was in the white monastery, which had been founded by his uncle, Picol. Um, and through a series of events, he became the leader of the monastery in the mid-380s, and so continued to lead the monastery for about 80 years until his death in 465.
0: Right. and um, And as I understand it, he led the monastery from a distance. That is, he didn't actually live with the monks, but lived out in a cave and sent his instructions by email or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct.
2: Um, while Shinoda was uh, simply an ordinary monk, although it's hard to imagine he was ever ordinary, okay. so to speak, <laughs> um, he had what he called revelations and visions from God that revealed to him that a sin of some gravity and magnitude had occurred within the monastery and that a group of monks were covering the sin up. He went to the leader of the monastery, who was the second leader, the successor to Shenouda's uncle, Pakol, and told him about this, and the leader rejected that this was nothing bad happening. So, um, Shenouda was in the monastery, and so Shenouda withdrew to live in the monastery, but not within the main clive for the rest of his life. Um, but events so happened that um, Shinuda's accusations turned out to be true the, we do not know what happened to this second leader of the monastery but Shinuda ended up becoming its third leader and yes he continued to live in his cave and so he had to do a. he would visit the monastery obviously and come and preach with some regularity but he did a lot of his uh, management of it through letters that he dictated were copied and then brought to the monasteries and so this is wonderful for historians obviously because we now have a record of a lot of inter exchanges between a leader and his monastic community that would have been lost if they were simply orally right performed
0: yes yes um and a model for the department chair for how to run a department. <laughs> yes, it's it's pre-email <laughs> leave a paper <laughs> trail yes, uh,
2: living at a living at a distance Live in a right? cave. But see the 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 one of the results of this is that certainly the White Monastery its federation is by far the best documented monastic community in late antique Egypt in terms of having actual information about what was going on in that community
0: and a large part of that documentation are is chanute's own own works yes
2: it's it's basically chanute's voice which means we have to uh, work with it very carefully but it's from the actual events as opposed to later hagiographic right right and so on
0: um so can we talk a little bit about his corpus because i understand that it itself constitutes a large part of early coptic literature like some some huge portion of like a third or
1: something or yeah
0: me yeah Sophia, yeah
1: yeah so one of the things that that's interesting about the corpus of Shenoute is that it comes from the library of his monastery so there's no mention of Shenoute almost in in other kinds of literature and i think all of the all of the manuscripts that we have come from the white monastery library
0: so what's the what's the shape of his corpus? Like, what kind of works do we have? Uh, what are they about? What genre? That sort of thing.
1: Okay, so <clears throat> so thanks to the work of uh, of mainly Stephen Emmel and and Landi, who reconstructed the manuscripts from the White Monastery, um, we know more or less the shape of Chenut's corpus. It was constituted by three types of three, three groups of texts. Uh, one of them was the known as the canons, which were like um, discourses addressed to his own community. Uh, the other one is uh, the discourses that contain like uh, discourses addressed to the wider Christian community of the area, and the, and the other section is uh, his letters. So and uh, so, thanks to this rec- codicological reconstruction of around one hundred codices from the White Monastery, we have access to most of the text.
0: 100 manuscripts?
1: Fragmentary. Fragments of.
0: (laughs) They're all very
2: fragmentary and in fact, I mean, I think we estimate, we only have, what, 10 to 20% of what he produced? Really? I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because um, although we count 100 codices, some of those codices survive only in a few pages. Right, right. Um, But, uh, yeah, no, it was a massive literary output is this on the scale of like john chrysostom or not that big um it's hard to say but yes it's on that it's on the. he's he's, an, he's a chrysostom slash augustine level literary output
0: yeah right <laughs> right uh, and c- can you say something about the current state of publication of his works um like i because i understand that there's a current project and both of you are on it oh. <laughs> well i mean the the um, yes, be, uh, the the problem with all of Coptic literature
2: not just Shenouda is its fragmentary state that um, the manuscripts were not recovered usually in um, moss and just moved that is they were divided up among many libraries and so you just have to figure out where everything is and so there have been um, in the past publications of Shenouda's works that were very just manuscript based scholars would just go to a library like in Paris the Bibliothek now, so you know, I'll find all the fragments of Shenuda and just publish them,
0: like diplomatic editions. Yes, yeah. yes. You know,
2: sometimes there was a, um, there was a Leipold and Crumb. They noticed that they were the same work in different manuscripts and would try to create what we might call editions. But it's only now that um, the structure of his literary corpus that Sophia described has been discerned. And yes, there's now an international project to create what we would, what would be a standard critical edition that would be based on literary works that we can identify and that use the multiple manuscripts to create what we call a critical edition. It's a big challenge because, this is an interesting thing, is that in Coptic literature, this has really never been done before. That is, most Coptic literature survives in, say, a single manuscript or maybe two, right? And the tradition in Coptic philology has often been, if you have multiple manuscripts, just to print both next to each other or something right. like that. So critical editions were essentially reconstructing the manuscript you're reading, filling in lacunae, and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. This There really hasn't been until now, with Shenouda, an example where you have a single work with, say, five different manuscripts that are all witnessing it, and one has to deal with issues of if they all spell the same word in five different ways, what spelling do you print? You know, so these very basic questions of how to edit mm-hmm. and present a critical edition of a multi witnessed text is a new challenge in Coptic studies and so it's it's so the project is taking a while to actually do because yeah. we had to figure out all that stuff.
0: Now, Now, all of his works are in Coptic, but I understand that he had a pretty good education in Greek literature and he used a lot of, you know, rhetorical tropes and, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, assets that he gained through this classical education or at least Christian, but Christian Greek education. And that he could, uh, he could presumably perform speeches in Greek and, and, and yet he survives for us solely through a Coptic medium. Um, And I think that this gives a a misleading impression uh, about him and his cultural profile uh, to, say, Byzantinists, who see him and see it's all in Coptic, and they notice maybe these problems about publication, and they think that this is some foreign person, like a different culture that Byzantinists shouldn't engage with. But in fact, um, I'm getting the impression that this is someone who illustrates precisely how the, the Greek patristic or Byzantine component uh, of his cultural profile can fit together with another one. And he made use of both um, in his own lifetime, at least. Though he doesn't seem that way to us, right? And what strikes me is that he seems to have been completely unknown to anyone outside of Egypt. Like the Byzantines later never knew who this was. There's no reference to him in any Greek text that we know, right? Unlike Pacomius. And Pacomius, it seems, didn't know Greek, at least not before the miracle, <laughs> right? right? So Byzantinists keep talking about Pacomius and Antony as these founding you know, fathers of Egyptian monasticism, um, and their Greek texts about Pacomius. But Shenouda was the one who was probably closer, like would have been able to converse with you know, educated Byz- Constantinopolitans right? better than either of those mm-hmm. two. Right that's a paradox to, to me. I mean that seems Yeah. Yeah that's so
2: that's I... definitely correct and I mean one one of the reasons is of course that the Bacomian federation, the Pacomian chain of monasteries included a Greek speaking monastery near Alexandria. And so the Bacomian monastery that that federation had actually a complicated history after Bacomius's lifetime, but they always maintained a connection with the Chalcedonian Greek Church, right, and some uh, Pacomian literature, like the rules and so on, were translated by Jerome already in the early period, right? While Shenouda's monastery remained definitely on the Miaphysite anti-Chalcedonian side, and um, the it, his federation never extended beyond these three monasteries in a very localized right. context. So there are, you know, some various reasons why that is the case. Um, but definitely his survival of his works only in Coptic and the fact that none of them apparently were translated into Greek early and got outside right, Egypt right. contributes to that.
0: But, but his tomb inscription was in Greek, right? I mean, you...
2: That's exactly right, yes. Um, and the inscription that dedicates his church that he built, he, the church that he built in his lifetime still stands. That's right. still there. And the kind of dedicatory inscription to the patron of the church is also in Greek, not in.
0: Why would he popular. make those choices then? I mean, why would he choose to use Greek for those texts?
2: Um, well, I'll let Sophia offer her opinion after I offer mine. But, um, but I, I believe that certainly in the. that Greek, I think, still connoted a certain cultural cachet, if you want to put it that way, that it made a kind of statement about what community he keeps. And that he actually saw himself as part of that kind of level of education and so forth. And uh, for the dedicatory inscription in the church, probably it was the language of the patron, and you wanted him to be right, able right. to read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, You know, and, uh, and I think it shows in the, um, in the tomb as well that Greek was still somewhat of a prestige language, I think, for these built
0: environment kinds of things.
2: I don't know, Sophia. What you would think?
0: Yeah, that. Sophia. What do you what do you think? So, why did Chanuda use Greek for his tomb inscription and the dedication of his church?
1: Ah, but it's not him, no, right? It's much later. The 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 tomb inscription.
2: Yeah, he was dead then.
1: He, he It was it's medieval, so he didn't choose it. Oh, much later. What what is the date of the inscription? I understand that this uh, tomb inscription is like much later. Hmm. They.
2: I don't know that the tomb inscription is much later. I mean, the, some of the inscriptions about his birth and so on are much later, but I'm not sure that the tomb one is.
1: Okay.
0: Anyway, that doesn't...
1: No, but he's... The, no, yeah. So so about Shenute and Greek, okay? So um, if we think of like his interactions with people in Panopolis and how he... he he has these debates that he describes uh, with with the pagans with with Gesios for example who was this governor of the Thebide which with whom he had this big pro- so he probably could speak greek and engage with like uh, and read the texts that he was also opposing so he knew greek and he participated in clearly he participated in the intellectual greek life as uh, that that he himself was opposing so he's like he knows his enemy so he's uh, and and the fact that he's engaging with with people in Panopolis who are uh, who are um, who who are these high uh, elite uh, people that uh, David was mentioning before this this uh, Hellenized elite in Panopolis was part of his activity so means that he was knowledgeable of all this Greek world. Yeah, I mean, I get the impression
0: that if he had, um, you know, appeared in Constantinople and had interacted with a, a Constantinopolitan who wrote an account of it afterwards, and they had conversed in Greek, that we would have had a the, the, the Shenouda with a Greek profile, with the Coptic side completely occluded, um, and he would have, you know, had a completely different reception, perhaps in the in the Byzantine tradition, um, and so that's what that's why I think that the the language in which his work survived, the language in which he. You know, delivered them and wrote them uh, gives a sort of misleading impression about sort of cultural difference. Um, I think, and and even reading the so I read the select discourses that uh, you translated, mm-hmm. um, and um, I mean, there's certain preoccupations in there that I find somewhat uh, uh, idiosyncratic, um, but I also found so much um, that was sort of references to late Roman life um, that are not that are not only. A sort of mainstream from the, what you find in this similar, you know, Greek literature of the time, but also they illuminate many aspects of life um, in a very useful way um, for for me working on completely different kinds of questions. So, for example, I just wanted to to point out a passage here that, that struck me. Um, so this is on page 226 of the translation, mm-hmm. and he's talking about what he takes to be the responsibilities of secular officials. Yes. Um, and I found this this is very interesting because he's, he says he blesses those who are and says seized unwillingly for such offices when they rightly fulfill the responsibility in action. And extremely wretched are those who have seized such offices with silver and gold and woe to them even more when they do not fulfill the responsibility of the uniform and the title that they have received for bribes. And I can see there, like, I'm interested in questions about how the responsibility of imperial officials um, and their duties were perceived like on the ground throughout the empire. And here we have someone in Egypt in a monastery who has a very clear understanding that officials are supposed to not obtain their offices by bribes. They have clear responsibilities to carry out and to do so with justice (laughs) That, to me at least, indicates. Well, I mean, it ties into broader debates about how you understand the workings of Roman government. Uh, but I found his discourses full of such very illuminating insights as just how he perceived, um, you know, both aspects of social life and you know workings of the state and so on. Right. I mean, he um, he
2: was clearly during the, you know, probably last thirty or forty years of his life, the most important Christian in a important area of Egypt, Panopolis, and its surrounding regions. Um, When things were going wrong with Christianity, it was the patriarch in Egypt wrote to Shenouda to take care of the problem, right? So Shenouda was a, you know, a person of some importance who felt like it was his job to look out for poor Christians, the people that he would like to come to his monastery and give it donations and so (laughs) forth and so on. But yes, he, he felt that part of his job was to hold officials account to to their responsibilities. And so, yes, you learn in his works a lot about not just um, government officials and what they're doing and what one Christian at least thought they should do to live up to their responsibilities, but a lot about just patronage. He's got a long description of how a wealthy patron interacts with people and feels like he should be treated and so forth. Now, all of this is very much done from a kind of populist
0: yeah, he's, yeah. He's Christian populism. yeah Christian yeah. populism he's appealing
2: yeah. to certain people and portraying folks in a certain way but yes he's he's in the midst of of real life despite the fact that he's living in a cave
0: right and <laughs> Panopolis is where very important high officials come from like Cyrus of Panopolis who was the prefect of Constantinople and praetorian prefect in the 440s or something and the poet nonus of yes. was like the most important uh, greek poet of the 5th century and they're all coming from this kind of so they would have known who that guy is oh they, complete, must do, they yeah. definitely knew who she was yeah right 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 but, but that doesn't come out in modern writings about the you know discussions of cyrus and nonus and so on that shanuda is a like part of their hometown background that's right i mean if it, you know and that that's
2: probably part of what we want to solve by producing at some point a critical edition of the works that will be accompanied by translations that people who don't know Coptic will be able to access. And hopefully that will enable people to have a fuller sense of what culture and even the economy was like in this region during the early Byzantine
0: period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's because of your translation that we're here right, right now, right? Yeah, Sophia
1: yeah that is part of the divide i was mentioning before in the in the modern scholarship like so some scholars are paying attention to the uh, exegetrical poets of panopolis and looking at their at their literary environment but they don't they they are not interested in in the fact that Shenuta is part of their lives so so p- perhaps like uh, there needs to be some some kind of conversation to understand the whole world of Panopolis and the and the intellectual and and more widely the cultural world of Panopolis, uh, putting together this very uh, highly intellectual Hellenic Hellenized uh, literary production and and the religious uh, life going on around
0: these people. That sounds like a good dissertation topic, right? We should foist on someone. <laughs> we should. I mean, part of the
2: problem clearly is is that um, being able to kind of bridge this divide ourselves between Coptic and Greek means learning different languages and specialized studies and so forth. And that's um, part of the difficulty we have to overcome is um, you know the ability to train graduate students and future historians in multilingual ways, and the ability to work with different kinds of evidence—not just literary mm-hmm. texts, but also papyri yeah. and archaeological evidence, and so forth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's so much archaeology coming out about uh, Egyptian monasticism recently. There's you know some right books. a
2: book a book just came out that that's yes. all about the archaeology of the White Monastery, and um, you know here we you know we have literary accounts of how many monks there were, but now we have someone who sat down and thought about how many bread ovens were exactly. there, and so how much bread could they actually physically make, and how many monks could they actually support? I mean that's. It's that kind of basic stuff. And the, the problem is, a lot of the archaeology for monasticism is later. You know, the remains that we can really look at is later than the fourth and early fifth century, that is what we're talking about when we talk about Chanuta. But nonetheless, very helpful stuff to do, right?
0: So, another preoccupation that I noted in his works is an obsession with punishment, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, both here and there, <laughs> in the afterlife, right. yes. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a, a bit unusual. I mean, the amount of emphasis that he put on that is that just him, or is is there a it, well, you, whether this or anything else, is there some sort of Egyptian component to his thinking about these things? Is is that part of some Egyptian tradition, or, or did you just did he just take it from? You know, mainstream Christianity and run with it. Well, I mean, here's the thing
2: a lot of this is what survives, right? And, um, you know, people often say, oh, Pacomius, he was so nice and, his, <laughs> and so forth. But we don't yeah. have any, you know, access to what happened when Pacomian monks really went bad. We don't have a lot of that kind of information. I mean, that's where the Shanuda information, we can say he's unique, but we don't know really that he is. Because when there were a group of, female monks who really were doing really bad things and they had to decide how to punish them we have his letters saying how many times they should each be hit right Right. but we don't know that in other monasteries they weren't doing the same thing they just were doing it verbally and we don't have the same kind of information but yes he I think it is having said that (laughs) I think we can also say that yes that he um, he took very seriously his responsibility to make sure that these people went to heaven and he really felt that punishment was the way people have evil wills and they need to learn how to make right
0: choices and often mm. punishing is the way you get them to do that and he was obsessed with this character Gessius uh, Sophia mentioned him earlier but he's this is a, a theme that seems to run through so many of his works this was some high official in Panopolis who was kind of like the bane of Shenouda's existence right who appears to have been just a regular Christian or something, and and Shenouda, like broke into his house and stole his idols and anyway, I, I just, every time you, you read about <laughs> Shanuda this guy Gessius comes up as a kind of nemesis. Yeah, yeah it's it, it, hard to say exactly why Shanuda
2: chose him um, as a particular target, but he seems to Gessius who. It seems to be a former provincial governor who remained in the area of Panopolis and is a substantial landowner. He seems to be um, a Christian who perhaps has not yet been baptized, which is very, you know, a catechumen and therefore very normal. Um but who Shinouuda suspects is actually secretly engaged in pagan activities. Shinuda also believes that he oppresses his um, his employees and his other dependents, his clients, whatever you want to call them. and But for Shenouda, why he chose to go after Gesias in particular is not quite clear but he does represent for Shenouda a problem which is not being sufficiently Christian, how Shenouda defines that, and exploiting people he believes economically and so forth. And Gesias apparently wasn't good at just letting go or not engaging or whatever because they're uh, yeah. Yeah it,
0: it went on for years. Yes. <laughs> so he 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 represented this sort of elite yes. intellectual oppressor, you know, yeah.
2: Right, who seems yeah. to have still been interested in, for example, pagan culture, you sure. know, traditional literature, traditional yeah, yeah, yeah. statuary, yeah. and so forth. And this, uh, Shenouda didn't like any of that. He had a much more purity-organized, uh, oriented sense of what Christianity mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So how is Shenouda remembered today in the Coptic church? Well, it's kind of fascinating because he is he is a
2: very popular and well-known saint. There have been three Coptic popes named for Schnuda, Um And people make an annual pilgrimage to the monastery remains in um, Sohag, outside Sohag, and so forth. But because of the way his works were transmitted, he's not at all remembered as an author, right? Um, because Copts, Coptic church, doesn't read Coptic. I mean, they use Coptic in their literature, but it's a church that operates Mm -hmm. with Arabic, right? right? And so as a kind of theologian, as a thinker, as an author, he's really not, that's not his identity in Coptic Christianity. He is um, a kind of famous saint that is localized in a particular place and associated
0: with monasticism.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Right, so who knows what this edition and translation will do to his memory even locally, right? There
2: has been a kind of book similar to the selected discourses in Arabic by one of our colleagues Samuel Moawad. Sam- yeah, and he's published quite a few translations in Arabic. It's not at all clear to me what effect maybe Sophia knows more this has had in the Coptic community really.
1: I don't know. I don't know.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm
1: not sure No, that- I don't do been the effect of the trans, of Samuel Moawad's translation.
2: You're right. In the yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the issues that face the Coptic church today are perhaps not those that one finds that much in Shenouda's writings. Right. So it's, it's not, I'm just not certain, but he he is a popular and well-known figure, but not a literary persona for them.
1: And I don't know how much interest there would be in expanding the knowledge about Shenouda in the Christian, Coptic Christian communities today.
0: So between his lifetime and this modern push to uh, edit, uh, publish, and translate his works, was Shenouda known anywhere outside the Coptic community in Egypt? Is there any evidence for that?
2: Not really until the early modern period when um, Europeans started to visit upstream on the Nile and they encountered this monastery and we're told that it's, you know, Amba and they realized there was this figure and, um, and then manuscripts became known. But it was really not until then, the 17th, 18th century, that he kind of re-entered the consciousness of wider Christian community, especially European Christians, right? And uh, they immediately became worried about whether he was a Chalcedonian or a non-Chalcedonian and stuff like that. And that's why his dating became very important right. to know, did he live past the council or not? But no, he was really kind of just not, no one, no. He, he was he was lost, really, to hmm. right. the wider Christian tradition.
0: Hmm. OK, um, so as we're closing the, uh, the discussion here, I wanted to ask you whether uh, you had um, any additional arguments uh, that you could address to Byzantinists about why they should pay more attention to the Coptic tradition um, From any angle I just want to encourage my colleague to look at my colleagues to look into this more so you're, you're the expert So what, what what would your pitch be? Oof.
2: <laughs> well, well, I would mention a couple things one is um, I mean, Byzantinists have long known that Egypt is extremely well-documented because of papyri survival about a lot of economic and other activities that you just don't know about it in a lot of other places. And to really appreciate the full range of that evidence, some knowledge of Coptic is really good, because a lot of that is actually in Coptic, right? Um, and the other thing to remember is that Byzantium was always, ai don't know how to put it, but it had a lot of different cultures within it, right? Um, It was a Roman state that had people who didn't always speak the same language, and just looking at how a multi, a bilingual, we'll put it this way, but eventually a multilingual, once Arabic comes into the picture, um, community operated is worth investigating and
0: seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm personally fascinated by the bilingual aspect, uh, maybe just for personal reasons. Um, but um, I, 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 in particular I'm fascinated by people who uh, were able to preserve a, a profile, a linguistic profile that was sort of complete in both languages and another example would be Dioscorus mm-hmm. of, of Aphroditi, Afro, um, or Aphrodito, as we call right. it, mm-hmm. um, who has, I think, at one point been called the worst poet in the history of the world? Oh. <laughs> right? Oh, that's sad for what you. Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> it is. At, and this is based on his Greek uh, poems. Right. So this is a 6th century local notary or lawyer in, in the city of Aphrodito in Egypt. And he went uh, to Constantinople at one point uh, for legal reasons, for an appeal, I think. Um, and we have some of his works in Greek and some of his correspondence and other, you know, notes in, in Coptic. And I, I think the Byzantines should should be more generous with the, these kinds of people, especially when they've been called such horrible things, because those are labels that, you know, Byzantine literature has also collectively been awarded, um, you know, as unreadable and, and horrible and so on. And I think that, <laughs> no, I mean, just looking at him in his cultural context and the way in which he used different... You know, the, the, each of the languages for a different purpose locally um, and you use the Greek in order to praise a visiting governor or to send a poem to the emperor but you use the Coptic for documenting local disputes and resolving them or uh, he, I think he has also a kind of a, 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 a dictionary he made up a little dictionary for himself um, it, for translating obscure Greek words so that he remember what they mean in Coptic is that right? Yes
2: and i mean th- this is one of the fascinating things about this bilingual situation is because a lot of coptic actually uses greek words i mean they're just
0: right greek right yeah 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 just yeah. taken just straight into up.
2: coptic right yeah. just they just take them on in and um, you know this is an it, it raises all these interesting questions about how does greek just even as a language survive and go forward and is manipulated controlled and assimilated by people whose greek may not even be that existent really so it's it you know it i I think for Byzantinus, it really can show how um a culture that we sometimes think a literary culture that we look at at a high level how it really is um appropriated and engaged with by by people in all sorts of different contexts within the empire
0: yeah yeah and 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 yeah so yeah
1: May I also add that uh, the case of the Oscars of Aphrodite, I find it uh, very interesting uh, in in that we access the Oscars of Aphrodite through the papyri. And papyri normally are found randomly. Mm-hmm. And perhaps the poems of the Oscars would never have been copied into... into uh, medieval manuscripts and and continue the textual tradition but we happen to have the chance of finding him only because we found papyri. <laughs> so we have access to random sets of documents and literary texts and this is one example. So you cannot judge the quality of his poetry and comparing it to what has to what has like uh, trickled into the textual tradition in in Byzantine manuscripts because that is a selection of the best. And this is just something that we found in the desert. and 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 so you cannot apply the same kind of literary criticism to to his poems,
0: yeah, this which... might be the stuff that he threw out. <laughs> or, or, yeah, I mean, I think we found him in a jar, right? yeah, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. no, I, I again, i i'm I'm just very intrigued by this. and and it, I think it's a it's an issue that extends across the Greek tradition. Uh, for example, imagine if we had Her- uh, Herodotus speaking his native Carian, right? Right, or Demosthenes. You know, the Demosthenes. I think his mother was Scythian, uh huh. Right, and so forth. So all of these Greeks, they had another side. Themistocles learned Persian, right? He goes to the Persian court and he learns Persian. Right. Uh, Plutarch tells us this. So I just love to hear Themistocles speaking Persian. I mean, that must be hilarious. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so the closing question I ask my guests is to recommend a book, a good book uh, you read recently or something that you think our listeners should take a look at. Uh, David, you want to go first? Um, sure. I mean, I am a
2: historian of religion, so I'm going to choose a recent book I really enjoyed in the field of religion, which is um, a book called Consuming Religion by a Yale religious studies scholar named Catherine Lofton. And uh, it's very much about our contemporary culture, but it is a um, an argument for how thinking about um, religion through a certain tradition that goes back to Emile Durkheim can really illumine culture, including things like celebrity in contemporary times and our office culture and stuff like that. So it's, it, it really asks us to think about how religion and culture relate to one another. And I think it can be useful for historians interested in these questions in any period.
1: Okay, Sofia. Oh, I'm going to be more nerdy in in my choice of book. Yeah, so uh, this is a book I'm hoping to read because it's coming out in January. And it's it's a book about the linguistic situation in Egypt, and I think I've read only one chapter that is available online. Uh, the 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 title of the book is "The Rise of Coptic." Uh, the author is Jean-Luc Fournet, who is a professor in uh, in Paris, um, and and the book explores this balance of Greek and Coptic in the in in late antiquity and how Coptic w- went from being uh, the popular language that wasn't used in administration to becoming a legal language. So it so he he's uh, he explores, uh, and I hope to read it soon. <laughs> he explores the the how this balance uh, happened and how we can how, how we can understand it through the written record that we have of Egypt.
0: All right. Well, thank you both. It was a great pleasure to have you on.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Oh, this is my first experience in a podcast. I'm so, so stressed. <laughs>